Hi, I'm your host, Will Brigger, and this is One Hour Intern. On this week's episode of One Hour Intern, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Fitzmorris, founder of one of the world's leading art strategic agencies with offices in London, LA, and New York. Her firm is behind some of the biggest names, museums, and brands in art, including Art Basel, Storm King Art Center, B&W Group Culture, and just launched art tech startup, Art Fizz. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me on today. I'm excited to speak with you on the one hour intern. So my first question for you is about the world today. Looking at the art world and the PR world, are there any brands or artists who stand out to you as big up and comers that nobody really knows about, but you feel are going to be super important in the next couple of years? I think there's a lot of change happening right now in the art space as there is really across all industries and sectors as a result of the pandemic and the calls for social justice and other things that are going on globally. It will be a way in which people can buy and trade artworks online in a really transparent way. It will, it will bring transparency to market pricing. It's a way for people to interact. I don't know if you have seen the automotive trading website called Bring a Trailer. It's a little bit like that, where um, audience can share their experiences and their comments, in this case, on a particular artwork or artist. And so I'm super excited about what they're doing. With regards to art and social justice in just the current landscape right now, are there things that artists should be doing, can be doing, and using their platform to help the art world, or just people can interpret art or use art to help the social justice world? I think the artists are actually leading the way. And I think what needs to happen and what is beginning to happen is that the big brands within the art space really need to be self-reflective and look internally and see what they can do to support and advance greater equality in the art space, in the art market, in the art world. Artists, including BIPOC artists, have long led the way in the last many, many years, showing us how we can do better and, and calling for, for justice. And now I think it's time for the major galleries, art fairs and auction houses, even agencies like mine to really step up and be reflective on how we can do better and take real meaningful action and have those difficult conversations. Yeah. Of course. So now let's go back to your childhood. You grew up in Minneapolis and attended the Blake School. What was your childhood like? I'm the youngest of four, and I'm definitely smack in the Gen X generation. And I think the reason why I say that with a little bit of a chuckle is, at least in my family, we kind of, in a way, kind of raised ourselves. But I mean that in the best possible way. We had terrific parents who were present and attentive, but also they didn't meddle and they kind of didn't micromanage and oversee. And then being the youngest of four, I think that was even more the case with me. So when I was 12, my youngest, next youngest sibling was 17 and so on. And they went up kind of from there. So I always sort of was expected to be older than I was and have more responsibility and I think that's why I entered the workforce pretty young. And I started my company when I was 25. It felt like a natural evolution. But also spending time with the arts was very much a part of my childhood. One of my earliest memories was seeing a major exhibition of Klaus Oldenburg at the Walker Art Center near where we grew up. I was probably like four years old. And I just have this one picture of a work, a soft sculpture that's kind of embedded in, in my consciousness. 
And my mom did a great job of, you know, making sure that we had access to culture and took us to cultural happenings and performances. And we were lucky enough to travel a little bit and see museums when we were kids. So I think that's what really paved the way for me to be interested in the arts. So I want to go back to the first thing that you said, which was you were more independent. You kind of raised yourself in a sense. What values or lessons did you learn in having to be independent at such a young age? I think one of the key things was just being a can-do person. My mom also always empowered us. I mean, to, you know, if we were little tiny kids and in line to buy a packet of candy at the store and someone tried to cut in front of us, my mom would say, speak up and say that you're next, sir, and like be polite, but like, you know, hold your ground even though you're seven years old. And so I think through those experiences, it gave me a sense of, you know, self-worth in a sense where regardless of my age, I counted and my opinion mattered. And I think I had a pretty clear voice from a young age, probably inspired by my mom. And my dad was an attorney. So certainly um, being a good orator was part of who he was. And then also my brother and sisters. So that poses another question of, for people who struggle with kind of that idea of self-worth and being able to use their voice, is there any advice that you can give along the lines of that? I think the first thing is recognizing that, you know, if you can recognize that you're partway home and if you can develop an inner voice that says, you know, no, actually that little negative voice, we're going to not listen to that one. And we're going to go with the, the true inner voice that I matter and I'm enough. And if that's not able to happen, I think being able to get some professional outside help to really hone, I mean, that's a skill like we you know, we take care of our bodies, we should take care of our emotional well-being as well. So getting some outside help, whether it's through counseling or, you know, a group or whatever your thing might be, maybe it's a religious activity, I don't know. But I think finding your inner voice and really using it is critical to success. And if you don't have it, recognizing that you don't have it and figuring out how to go get it, how to find it and listen to it. Today, do you have any tactics that you've developed along the way that you use to ensure that you still know or that you, I guess, say emotionally strong, like you hone your emotional skills? Yeah, I do. I do a lot of things separately and, and privately and independently. But one of the things that I do in my business is I really leverage and include my team. I think that transparency in a business is so critically important. And I learned this from one of my mentors who is a really insightful business strategist. And about 10 years ago, you know, she said, include your team in these big decisions, include them in the financial aspects of the company, you know, not every single detail, but in broad strokes, if if business is great, they should understand why if it's gone down, they should understand why. And this goes down to with certain parameters, but to our most beginning team members who might be younger, also in especially a climate like this, where there's so much uncertainty, calls for racial justice, a lot of fear, I think, I have been able to leverage being a strong leader and there for my team, but also to really listen to them because like it or not, um, I am how old I am and I've had my experiences and they've had different experiences and they bring a lot to the table. And so being able to listen to them and also inviting them to give feedback and hold me and our company accountable. Yeah, of course. 
So I want to go back to your family. Mm -hmm. Obviously, your parents taught you culture and taught you how to speak and how do you use your voice. What other values did they make really clear to you? And how did they make them an important part of it? I grew up in the Midwest, which I think, you know, in the in the 70s and 80s was very different than coastal cities. We've become a lot more global with the ease of air travel. I mean, I remember the first time I went on an airplane, I was probably 10 years old. Who can say that these days that they remember their first airplane ride? I mean, in, in our country and in business, let's say. But at any rate, I think there was just this very clear sense of right and wrong. And one of the things that my family, I think, held in highest regard was just really being an upstanding person, trying to do the right thing, and also just being really honest and forthright. And that's something that I have really leaned on in in my family with my children. I always tell my kids, I'm like, the only thing you get trouble in trouble for in my house is is being truthful, lying, or being deceitful. Everything else we can get through together, but you got to bring the truth and the honesty and transparency to the table. Were there any times when you when you broke that trust and you had to bounce back and you realized you made the mistake, but you learned that value was really important because you broke it? Not really that that I can think of. I mean, I think there have certainly been times where you sort of go down that path where you realize like you're you're stuck in a pickle. And it's human nature when you're stuck in a pickle to like have the knee-jerk reaction of being untruthful or whatever, lying or fibbing your way out of it. But I tend to really face it. I don't live with a lot of fear. And so I tend to just face it and say, you know what, I screwed up. And I'm really sorry. And I find that when you own those mistakes and you're really forthright about it and you own it and, and apologize and then seek for ways to make amends and put it right, it tends to really go well and in your favor and has been my experience. Yeah, of course. You know, that brings up another point of not having fear in what you do. Is there any stories that you can share that helped you kind of ha- instill those values in yourself? I think just pushing through it is a critical component. We all, you know, we all have moments where we're fearful. I remember one of my first projects, um, my dad died when I was 26, uh, just a little bit after I started my company, Um, he died suddenly. And I had a big, my first big project in Europe. And I was like young and a new company and my first big project in Europe. And I was terrified of flying. And I felt like if I went on this trip, like something terrible is going to happen to me. I just think when you're when you lose a parent, you become a little bit irrationally fearful and insecure because your world has come upside down. And I called my mom from the airport and I said, I just I don't think I can do this. And somehow, you know, she was like, you're going to just go do it. And I just like threw my faith out there and was like, I just have to do it. And I was completely flipped out until the minute I landed. And then when I landed, I was like, it was like the lights came up and this amazing and I had the most amazing experience and trip. And I, you know, I was surfing a wave that was a lot bigger than me, but I did a great job. And I just felt so good about myself having just done it in the face of this like crippling fear. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Let's jump back to when you were my age, 17. The year's 1985. The biggest movie is Jurassic Park. Mariah carries all the rage and gas is only $1.11. Up to this time, what's the biggest struggle that you've faced? Well, I'm sorry to say that when I was 16, my best friend died of leukemia. And so that was a a real struggle. 
It was something that her family allowed her closest friends to sort of go through with them. And so watching your friend go from being like amazing and and happy to frankly suffering was really, really difficult. And then of course, when she passed away, it was, it was life changing. And so I hope that most people tuning in didn't have that kind of experience, but it did, you know, it did really alter my life. I think it changed my experience of high school dramatically, but then sort of the fog lifted when I got to college and I was able to process it bit by bit, you know, but it's still very touching even all these years later. How did you process losing someone so close to you at such a young age? A lot of a lot of sleep. There was a lot of sleep involved. My school was very, very supportive. They really put in some extra infrastructure around me with, you know, which at that time there weren't things like accommodations and and they did a lot of extra things to sort of make room for me to to go through that grieving, including, which was amazing because I finished all of my credits, allowing me to do an independent study the second half of senior year, which basically I went to art school. I mean, I had a couple classes on my campus and then I went to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design and took life drawing and painting. And, and that really has been very helpful in, in what I do today. But it was just literally getting one foot in front of the other therapist helped and just time, time and support and kind people around me. And time, I think, was the biggest help and healer. Of course. Do you have any pieces of advice for people who go through grief or are losing people in their own lives? I think just being very gentle with yourself and also asking for help. You know, I think especially these days, compared to back then, there's a lot more help available. There's there's free help. A friend of mine's doing a course right now where he's training to be a, you know, sort of therapist light. He's not getting like a medical degree, but he's he's going into counseling places where there's therapy that is free. So I think asking for help, knowing that you're not alone, that other people have been through this, and that it won't. You will come out the other side and there is healing possible, but it, it's rough going through it. Yeah. How do you think your experience changed you and shaped you into a different person? What were the long-term effects? I think one of the long-term effects of, of my experiences was this sense of self-reflection. And I think where that has played well for me from a business perspective is I think because I've been through a number of things, I'm pretty resilient. I also, it's engendered a deep sense of calm in me. I mean, one of the pieces of feedback that I get from clients and team members is I'm who you want in your corner when there's a crisis. I'm I'm pretty unflappable. I have a cool head. I'm a really linear, straightforward thinker when there's a crisis. And I don't get rattled that easily. And I think it's because I've been through things. And those qualities have really served me really well in my business, especially when crisis communications comes up. Yeah, of course. Before the end of your high school experience, were there any other really pivotal moments that helped you learn important lessons like Mm self-reflection? I think my first jobs really helped me understand humility and the value of money. And those first jobs in high school were retail. I had a retail job in a women's clothing store, like a little boutique in our community. And I also waitressed. 
I think there is no better training than food service industry. It's really tough. It's hard work. It's a lot of juggling. And I think it it is very humbling to just be in the service business. And your job is to provide service to people who are trying to enjoy themselves and and you're serving food. It's really straightforward. It's not fancy. And or I guess it can be if you're a sommelier or working as a professional waiter, but as a high school student, being a, a wait person is, I think, terrific experience. It's real world experience. How I grew up, there weren't really internships the way there are now. And so it was critical to have a job, to have money to spend, you know, to do things and be independent. Yeah. So after high school, after you had these first couple jobs, you had a couple pivotal moments in your life. You attended Boston University, where you graduated magna cum laude, and you got a degree in art history. What was college like for you? I was one of those kids who picked college by the city. I wanted to go to college in a city. I was not a campusy kid. I was not a sporty kid. I was kind of the alt alt rock punky sort of kid. And so I wanted to be in a city and I had lived in Paris in 10th grade. And so East Coast felt more comfortable to me. And I actually, I was, well, I did graduate from BU. I unburied my diploma the other day and moving a couple months ago. I was only at, at BU for two years. My third year, junior year, I did abroad and it was a work study program. I was someone who really wanted to get out into the workforce. I just wasn't a college kid. I got a good education, but certainly not, you know, someone who has a master's or a PhD. And I, third year of college, I was working probably 20 hours a week. I had an internship. I think I was Sotheby's London first non-paid intern. They didn't really know what that was. I'm like, no, you don't have to pay me. I get college credit. So if you'll let me work and give me some training and I do a project, I get college credit. And they were like, hmm, how old? (laughs) So I did that. And then second semester, I was an intern at British Vogue when Liz Tilberis was the editor-in-chief. And I was basically junior girl on fashion shoots. And it was very eye-opening and super interesting. I certainly did grunt work. I mean, I think at Sotheby's, most of my work was sticking caption sticker captions on photos literally for hours at a time and but somehow I learned something just by being in the auction environment and being around people and overhearing conversations I'm sure they do an incredible job these days those early days so obviously those were pretty big internships for a a junior in college or just for anyone in general how did you get those internships and how did you know that you really wanted to be in the workforce at that time I was one of those people that just asked. I wasn't particularly connected. It's not like I had parents who were connected in Europe, not at all. I think Sotheby's, I just literally sent a resume and rang them up and rang them up and rang them up and finally got got somebody to to meet with me. And then I think sort of the Vogue thing was like a friend of a friend of a friend. Oh yeah, I could use some help. I don't have, there's no budget for an assistant. So that's one thing I tell my daughters, my teenage daughters all the time is you don't ask, you don't get. And I think being bold enough to ask and say, hey, is this an opportunity? Or can you make an opportunity? Or can you do an informational interview with me? Or do you have a spot for me? I think it's really hugely important. 
and beneficial. I had a young woman who worked for me a good number of years ago, and now she has a very senior position at one of the museums at the Smithsonian. She's terrifically talented, and she got her job with Fitz & Co. literally just by being persistent. She came by our office. She came by again. She called me, and not annoying, like very professional, but just kept expressing her interest. And finally, we had a position. I was like, okay, because she really expressed that she, she made it happen. And again, not annoying, but persistent, appropriate, respectful, and, you know, and qualified as a... Of course. Yeah, within what we needed. So how do you build the the boldness and courage to keep going after being rejected the first time, rejected the second time, and making it to the third ask, the fourth ask, the fifth ask? You just got to visualize it happening and you got to want it. And you, you can't take these things personally. I mean, I got rejected from so many jobs. I moved to New York in 1990, I think, right after the stock market meltdown. and there were no jobs. I mean, there were literally no jobs. And the jobs that there were, were very low paying, very low engagement, like sitting at a gallery in a front desk, answering phones when nobody was coming in. And also not being afraid to step out. So what I did instead of taking a job in a gallery, which was on my track, I basically took a job as a secretary. I was the executive assistant slash personal assistant to a female entrepreneur who owned at that time a dress company that specialized in mother of the bride and bridesmaids dresses. She was a very successful female entrepreneur. What she did in terms of her product really didn't interest me whatsoever. I learned more in that year than any gallery front desk would have taught me. And it was it was really impactful. I mean, she taught me so much, gave me so much responsibility. And also, I like to say I learned how to be a New Yorker from her. But you need if you're living in New York and you're not a New Yorker. Yeah. So I do want to talk about your whole professional experience in post-college. But before we get there, I just want to, were there any failures that you had in college or prior to college that stand out as really important to you? I don't look at life that way. Like, I don't look at things as failures, really. Like, Everything becomes a learning opportunity and part of the journey. And sure, did I have setbacks and make mistakes or screw things up? Definitely. There's not like a big, a big, bold one that comes to mind, but tons and tons of challenges. I mean, that being in New York and I was doing freelance work actually for my sister and just sending resumes out and calling and so discouraging and just feeling like I'm never going to get a job. And I've definitely felt like that. And, and somehow you just have to just keep pushing through it and keep visualizing or like go sideways and, and say, okay, this isn't working. Let's do something else for a minute instead. Yeah, of course. So now I want to go to the segment, the coffee break. When I ask you about a funny story or an embarrassing story, what moment really comes to mind? So when I was getting my, I started my business really young. And when I was getting my business started, I, as I mentioned, I was assisting my sister and she was a stylist in New York for print and television ads. So we were, we had a shoot planned in Sedona, Arizona. 
And right before that, I had the very good fortune of meeting an older woman in the art world, very, very established art advisor named Thea Westrike, who's still in business. And she said, what are you doing? And I told her I'm trying to, you know, start doing PR on my own. And she said, I might have an idea for you, you know, give me a call. So I called her and she said, I have an idea for you related to a video artist. And this was 1995. I'm like, what in the world is a video artist? I had no idea. So I, you know, did a bunch of research, called anyone that I could, finally tracked down Jim Cohan, who at the time was with Anthony Dofe and knew about video art. So he kind of explained what video art was to me. And I, I went to the meeting with Thea and she said, this video artist named Bill Viola is representing the U.S. at the Venice Biennial, you know, this coming June, and they need PR, but they have a very small budget. And Arizona State University Art Museum was the sponsor, the commissioner of the show. So lo and behold, I find myself in Sedona being my sister's assistant, which literally is like ironing clothes and sticking pins to do a photo shoot. And Arizona was like, Bill is in town. Why don't you come meet with us? And I'm like, okay, so I have to figure out how am I going to get from the photo shoot that that client is paying for in Sedona to ASU? I'm like a 25-year-old kid, don't have a lot of money. Let me try to figure this out. So I figure out that there's a car service that can take me. I like borrow money from my sister. The only car, they don't have town cars, they have limousines. So they pull up to take me to Arizona in a like a stretch limousine. I'm like, oh, dear Lord, if these people see me, they are going to think like I'm some fancy spoiled. I don't know what. Like, just drop me off down here at the corner. I walk a few blocks. Had a great meeting with Bill and his wife, Kira. They were absolutely lovely people. Shared with them my qualifications and my vision for what what I could do for them for, for Venice. And miraculously got the job and that was my first big gig but the whole thing was this I don't know just comedy of errors that I was in Sedona and scraped together money to like book a car service it ends up that it's a limo I'm kind of talking my way through like yes I know about video art read all these books and it was one of those like fake it till you make it moments I'm sure they saw right through it but Something about what I shared and certainly the the budget that I offered them at the time being fresh to the scene um, worked. And that was what really helped set my company on a great path. Yeah, of course. So now that we've gone through the coffee break, I guess I can ask you more about your professional career. And that story really was your big break. But before your big break, when did you kind of know that you were going to make it? Not the moment where you started to make it, but kind of when you were able to tell yourself, I'm going to make it, things are going to be all right. And how did you get to that mental mental state? I have to be honest, that just doesn't resonate with me. I don't think about things like that. I think about things as part of a continuum and part of a journey. And every step along the journey, for me, is meaningful and it builds on the other. And I almost want to laugh and say, like, have I made it yet? I don't know. Because me making it as you're engaged, you're learning. Sure, you, you make enough money to pay for your house and your kids to go to school and, and all of that. But it really is, it's the journey. It's not the destination for me. Yeah, of course. So then in your professional career, are there any big moments that stand out other than the one that you just described as 
crucial parts of the journey, big stepping stones to improving where you've learned major lessons? Yeah, certainly this pandemic has been one of those, but running a business and continuing a business through 9-11 up until the pandemic is definitely the biggest challenge that I have ever faced. Obviously, it was shocking experience globally. I watched it happen from our apartment window downtown with my own eyes. My office was nearby. Luckily, I was still at home because the art world starts a little later than 9 a.m. And the business and the world changed overnight. I think by the Friday after 9-11, my revenue dropped 50%. I just had client after client call up and say, have no visibility, have to cancel our contract. Still had obligations, obviously, payroll, rent, everything else. A staff that was terrified. I was older than them, but not a lot. And, you know, they were terrified. Some of them were left the city, fled the city, not coming back. It was just everything got completely turned upside down. And I think, you know, through that, the Sarah doesn't panic mode kicked in and somehow just was like, okay, got to figure it out. What do we have now? What do we have to cut? What do we have to do? And just got very, very tactical and short term with regards to steadying the ship financially, but then also how do we support our clients who are going through this as well? How do we provide leadership? How are we there for them? How do we demonstrate our value? How do we help them navigate this? And we were really able to figure that out. Our team pulled together more closely. Some of our team left and never came back. We did have to lay off a good number of people, which was very challenging. Imagine everyone's emotionally distraught and now you find out you're losing your job. It's horrible. It's a horrible news to have to deliver. And that's when I'm like, okay, we have to make the best decisions for the greatest number of people that, that are holding the company together and moving forward. And that experience has really supported me in navigating this pandemic for my team and my clients. And I think we were very early on top of seeing the storm clouds on the horizon and what to do about it as a result of surviving and then following thriving um, after 9-11. So in your opinion, how do you navigate a crisis and what advice can you give to, you know, whether it's a business crisis or just a, a personal individual crisis, what advice can you give on that? I do a lot of crisis communications work. And, you know, part of that is not only crisis management when something happens, but also crisis prevention. So I think there's surprise crises like a 9-11 or, or a pandemic in a way that happens out of the blue. It could be something smaller. I've had clients accused of animal cruelty that like, they're like, what are you talking about? Because for a live animal in an exhibition, that was misunderstood. So, you know, big and small things. I think the first thing is, you know, remaining calm. If you need outside counsel, obviously getting outside counsel, but for people in my industry, remaining calm is absolutely critical. And then you just put all the cards on the table. What do we have here? What are we looking at? Obviously, if it's, if it's involving anything legal, you need to involve legal counsel. And then you just methodically come up with a plan. The other advice that I always give my clients is you have to tell the truth. You may not have to say anything, but you, you have to tell the truth. So whatever the truth lies. Now, of course, again, if it's the, I'm being very generalistic, if it's a legal thing, you have to go with what your lawyer tells you. But if it's something else, you, you have to be truthful. So I adopt that with my employees. I tell my employees, 
this is what we have. This is where we are. This is what's happening. This is what I know. This is what I don't know. Forthrightness, transparency, remaining calm, looking at all of the facts, being extremely rational, being very thoughtful, trying not to make decisions when you're upset or agitated. And if you are seeking outside help of someone who's not, whether they're getting paid or not, those are kind of, for me, the touchstones of navigating any crisis. Did you have any influential mentors in your life that helped you learn to navigate your own crises or kind of remain calm in stressful situations or when thinking about the future? Definitely. I mean, I have had business mentors. I've had paid mentors in the form of consultants. I also think peer-to-peer mentorship is critically important, and I always encourage my team to remember that. So over the years, I've had people that run similar but different businesses that uh, to mine, and being able to call them and tap into their expertise and just do a gut check. And so having a net, they mostly are all women as well, which has been great for me, but having a community of people that you trust. I'm also someone who I give sort of people the benefit of the doubt in terms of I consider people sort of trustworthy until proven otherwise, as opposed to the opposite. And so I have had this really strong network of, I think year over year, the collegial network is the one that I have gone to the most other than paid consultants. Yeah. So now I'll kind of zoom out and ask some more bigger picture questions. Looking back on your whole life, have you kind of thought about how have you made your decisions based more on instinct or based more on intuition? And if so, what goes through your mind when making a crucial decision? First of all, one of the benefits of being 50 rather than 25 is I have 25 more years of experience than I did when I was first starting out, right? And that's very beneficial. I was reading a post on LinkedIn today about the importance of multi-generational teams And I think that is really important. There was comments about this retirement age, you know, this sort of artificial age for retirement. And by not engaging older, much older people, we lose a lot of wisdom. Same as by not engaging younger people, we lose touch point with contemporary culture and what's happening out there sort of shaping culture today. So I think that that intergenerational experience is, is really vitally important. I listen to my gut a lot, but I think it takes practice listening to your gut. And we all have the gut. It's there. It's whether or not you listen to it. And again, I think it's one of those things where practice is what really, really drives that home. And when something occurs and it doesn't go how you expect and you're like, should have listened to my gut. I think that's a really important moment to stop and say, what did my gut tell me? Why didn't I listen? And how can I make sure that this doesn't happen again? Yeah, of course. So before we go to the PowerPoints, I will ask you two more questions. The first being, looking back again at your whole life, are there any other setbacks or moments that you feel like stand out as pivotal? And how have you overcome them if there are? Mm-hmm. Again, I, I think of, I think of getting to where I am today as just a continuum. And yes, there have been huge challenges in my life personally, professionally, and it really is about 
not looking at them in that way, but looking at them as learning opportunities. Like everything is a learning opportunity. And I even, I say to my my kids, if if they're having a, a challenge with a friend, you know, teenagers have challenges, especially girls have challenges with friends that are, can feel very fraught. And I, I sit with them and I say, what's the learning here? What have you come together to teach each other? Like so you've come together to teach each other something. And if you can get to the bottom of that, maybe... Maybe this friend is teaching you empathy, or maybe they're teaching you tolerance, or maybe they're teaching you that you actually don't want a friend like that, that you want a friend who doesn't talk to you and put you down. That's why I think setbacks, they don't stand out for me in my mind. I'm not trying to be coy and say there haven't been either. There have been tons, but it's all part of this continuum, whether things went really well or things went really badly. It's all part of this learning continuum. And I, I mean, I hope to be doing that. If you're not learning anything, you need to shake it up and figure out how you can. Yeah, of course. And then I'll ask, now that you've reached a a pinnacle of success, how would you personally define success? Success to me feels like how I impacted others. And that's both personally and professionally. As a parent, am I raising good people and and putting good emotionally intelligent people who are going to contribute my launching those kinds of people out from my house when they fly soon with my team have have I provided time and space for them to grow and learn and become their best selves I'm always so proud of team members when they leave and they go on to do amazing things we have we have past employees who've gone on to be leaders in museums or even competitive agencies and i think we are a small part of their success having provided these individuals a training ground and then in our with our clients have we contributed to their goals have they have they become better institutions have they grown in what they do have they achieved their business objectives and it really at the end of the day, that's what makes me feel good. It's like I had a positive impact on individuals, our clients, whether they're for-profit or institutions. Maybe it's a straightforward business objective of we want to sell real estate in a beautiful building by a celebrated architect. If they were able to do that and we contributed to it, it means something to me. Of course, it probably means more if it's, you know, we, we we draw in new audiences and, and serve our community. But that's kind of what gets me going and, and keeps me going is, is the in, interaction and the impact on other people. Yeah. So before we close, I just want to thank you for giving me the time. And at the end of each internship, each interview, I do a segment called the PowerPoints, which is your three main takeaways from our conversation, from your experience, three pieces of advice you could give to my listeners. What would those three things be for you? I'm going to do three and a half because I think the first one is just comes out of my Midwestern roots more, but I'm also trying to teach my kids this. The first one, which I'll call a half, it's so basic. It's not a bad thing to work hard. You know, you certainly should take, take pleasure in your work, but I can tell you like early in my career, there was some heavy lifting, like, you you know, early on while you're learning and earning your stripes, like there's things that just need to get done and, and being more of an entry level person, being willing to be that person who will, who will do those things. 
is very meaningful and it does it does add up it really does and so having a strong work ethic and again not to work for work's sake but you know just a strong work ethic what can i do to contribute and move this forward and it it doesn't just it doesn't just come you, you sort of build it's building blocks but more to the meatier ones if you will you know the the first thing that to me is so important is to be self reflective be willing to look at yourself especially I shouldn't say especially, but I think even more so now in these challenging times, really being able to look at yourself and your company, where that's either your company or where you're working in an honest way and see how you're showing up and asking others for feedback and really being able to listen to the feedback, even if it makes you uncomfortable. You learn so much by being open to hearing other people's feedback. And I think my most successful employees are people who take constructive criticism well, but then also being someone who can deliver it in such a way that people can hear it. Next, I would say being accountable. I was on a call today that I was so happened today because it was meaningful to our conversation, but I was on with an individual named Jason Craig Harris, who's a DEI strategist. And we talked about accountability, and he raised the point of having accountability that becomes untethered of this notion of punishment. So if you can hold people accountable, but not tether it to this punishment, you've done something bad, or you're not good enough, or you've failed, or you've done a terrible job. If we can just be accountable in a self-reflective and awakened way or a conscious way, um, that's when change can really happen. And people can be more open to change. So I love that that conversation with Jason today. And then empowering others and sharing credit. I like to give my team the opportunity to, I don't surf, but I love the surfing metaphor of surfing a wave that's a little a little too big for you. And I like to give my team the opportunity to do that, throwing people in the deep end with tools that they've learned and letting them swim. And not being afraid to fail. I just, I don't think there is any such thing as failure. It's just everything becomes a learning opportunity and part of this continuum that I've talked about a few times. And then sharing success. Success is a team. It's a team effort and credit should be shared and really helping to elevate and provide opportunity for those people who are on your team who might have roles that are more entry level or more administrative, like they are part of the success too, and they should be included and invited to share in it, including interns. We have a great cohort of interns this season. And I just spent about an hour with one of them who's writing a thesis and she was kind enough to interview me for that. And it was really, it was great to interact with her in that way and and have some quality time and learn more about what she's doing and how we can impact her and how she can be a part of our success and we can be a part of her success. Yeah, great. Sarah, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for the time. Thank you. I appreciate you including me in this with this interesting and illustrious group of other guests. And I thank you for being interested to talk with me. Check out other art-related episodes with Mark Glimsher, owner of renowned Pace Art Gallery and Fine Art Collective, Friends With You. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Make sure to follow on Instagram as well at One Hour Intern. That's the number one, not the word. And share this episode with your friends. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time. Thanks. Thanks.